0: with me to Matthew the 26th chapter and uh, let me say good morning again to everybody and I'm really glad that you're here for part two of our journey from the upper room to the empty tomb in this series Easter changes everything next Sunday of course is Easter Sunday and I hope that you're planning to be here uh, for our services uh, our morning of service is really starting with our uh, intimate sunrise service at eight ten in the morning Uh, Followed by an Easter fellowship breakfast at 8.40. I understand David Hay is going to be preparing that for us. Uh, Then we'll have a combined adult Sunday school class at 9.15 and our worship at 10.30. And I hope to welcome each of you here next Sunday, along with your neighbors, uh, your family, your co-workers, your classmates. And I pray uh, they will join you. And I want to ask each of you as members, if you... Would extend your hand of welcome next week to anyone that you haven't uh, met yet so that we can go deeper in our fellowship and in our mutual encouragement of each other as believers. Well, let me begin by asking you today, what do you think of when you hear the word final? Uh, If you're a college basketball fanatic like I am, you're immediately going to be thinking, about the final four uh, that just wrapped up with March Madness as the uh, Texas Tech Raiders lost in overtime to the 2019 NCAA champions, the Virginia Cavaliers. Final score, 85-77. If you're a college student and you hear the word final, you might be thinking of that dreaded end-of-semester exam. If you've gone through the trauma of a divorce you might think of that traumatic day when the divorce becomes final. If you're getting ready to plan for a party and and you need groceries at the last minute or you're one of those bargain shoppers, you might shop from time to time in that final or, or bargain bin. And many, many times I have been in the hospital room following a code blue call with doctors and nurses and technicians and families as I've watched them perform CPR to, to resuscitate a patient while pushing adrenaline and lidocaine and calcium chloride and magnesium sulfate, a syringe after syringe of carefully scripted and recorded drugs. And I have stood with staff and families while their loved ones took their final breath in those final moments on this earth. And I wonder, what do you do in a moment like that. We always join hands and pray, and sometimes you'll hear us sing a hymn together. Last week, we left the upper room with Jesus and his disciples, and as they left that upper room, they sang a hymn. And the last week of Jesus' life, from that triumphal entry into Jerusalem that we celebrate on Palm Sunday to this moment that we come to in, in Matthew 26... Everything about this week was a week of finalities. There's been his final visit to the temple. There's been his final teaching. There's been his final Passover meal that he celebrated with his best friends for the last three years. And Jesus knows in the coming hours he's going to be going on an uphill journey that will take him to the place known as the Skull or Golgotha. What do you do in moments like that? Well, Jesus did what many of us do in those moments. He prayed. And we read in the scripture in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. But you know, the Bible tells us that even before that passage in Matthew 26 that Jesus, he began praying when he was still in the upper room with his disciples. When they had that last supper together. In fact, there is a prayer recorded in Scripture that is the longest prayer of Jesus recorded in the Bible between John 14 through John 17, and it's called the High Priestly Prayer. I know that sounds kind of fancy, doesn't it? But do you know what Jesus prayed in that prayer? Among other things, he prayed for his disciples, and he also prayed for all in the world who would come to believe in him one day. And he prays for them And he prays for us that we might know what you have there on your outline, that in Christ we are committed to impact the world and be aware that Satan will try to take us down. Jesus prayed in John 17, 15, Father, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world. That's not my prayer for them, Father, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus said, God, I don't want you to take my disciples out of the world. I'm sending them into the world because that's where I want them to share me, to make a difference. I don't want to take them out. I want you to protect them. In other words, what he'd already taught his disciples to pray back in Matthew 6, 13. You know, you remember what Jesus told his disciples to pray? Lead us not into temptation, but do what? Before Jesus left this earth, he said, Father, now hear and answer their prayers. Because it's my prayer, too, for those who would follow me. And friends, we believe that is part of the mission we have here at the Springfield Church of Christ. We don't believe that God has called us to be completely separate from the world. Nor has he called us to assimilate into the world so much that we become just like everybody else but God has called us to be different. And He's called us to go into the world to impact the world, to impact our friends, to impact our families, to impact our neighbors and our colleagues and our classmates. He's called us to impact the lives of drug dealers and politicians. He's called us to impact the lives of abusers and convicts and the entertainment industry. He's called us to penetrate this world with the good news of the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ. You see, we are not a threat. You are not a threat to the evil one. If all you do is exist in your own little Christian bubble, reading your Christian magazines, reading and listening to Christian music, meeting with Christian friends, with a little Christian bumper sticker on the back of your car that may say, you know, Jesus loves Springfield, you're not a threat. You're a threat to the evil one when you're out there beyond these walls and when you're committed to praying, when you're committed to to sharing Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus says, God, don't take them out of the world, but as they go into the world, protect them because they're going to be wearing a target for the evil one. And I want you to notice what Jesus prays next. In John 17, verse 20, he begins, My prayer, it's not for them alone. I pray also for those who will, what? Believe in me through their message. That all of them may be, what? One very important word. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, that they may also be in us. Why? So the world can believe. That you sent me. Amazingly enough, Jesus was praying for me on that night of finalities. Jesus was praying for you, too. In other words, as Jesus was considering everything, as Jim said, that lay before him, you were in his prayers. I was in his prayers. The Springfield Church of Christ was in his prayers. And his prayer was, Father, keep them united Keep them to keep the main thing the main thing. Keep them as one, just as we are one. Why? So the world can believe that you truly sent me. He was praying for our unity. And yet not a generation would go by that we don't read of serious divisions and schisms and arguments and cliques and clubs and disunity in the church. In fact, are are you aware of this? (laughs) Believers in Jesus have a history of fighting and not getting along with one another. Gasp, right? And dividing for over 2,000 years now. Sometimes even entire churches splitting from one another. (laughs) You know, my brother Bob Baird told me a story once, and because he's told me, that means he probably told you as well. But it was a story about a guy that had been stranded on a deserted island for 20 years until he was finally rescued. And when his rescuers came, he was showing them, what an ordeal. And and, and all the experiences he'd had within 20 years on this little island. And he said, you see that building over there, that little hut? That was my house. That's where I lived. A lot of memories there. Over there, you see that little building? That was my own little gym. That's where I worked out every day. It was my own little club. And and then I would run laps around my little island. And he pointed to another little building and said, that little building, that was my church. And that's where I worshiped. And one of the rescuers asked him, well, what about this building over here? What about this one? And he said, well, that's where I used to go to church. That's the way I laughed at Bob, too, when he told me. You know, Jesus prayed on that final night, that his followers would be one just as he and the Heavenly Father were one so the world could believe. That's why we need to remember and we need to repeat not only Christ's words but Paul's words to one of the first churches to struggle in 1 Corinthians 1.10. We need to remember these words as he said, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say in order that there might be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now at the Springfield Church of Christ, we are a non-denominational church because we're just trying to be Christians only around here. You know, one of the things I love about this church is that there are people, part of this fellowship that come, From all kinds of different church backgrounds, all kinds of different denominations, uh, places that people have been on their spiritual journey. But here, all those differences fade by divine design. And what unites us is not our denominational distinctives or differences. What unites us is the common goal. We're here to follow Jesus and Jesus alone. Let me prove it to you with a little experiment here this morning. I want you to see how many different church backgrounds we come from in this this fellowship. What I'm going to do is I'm going to name a different denomination. And then if that's a denomination that you grew up with, I want you to repeat it back to me out loud. Okay? If you can shout it, do that. Okay? So in other words, if I say Methodist, I want you to say Methodist back to me. Okay? Got that? All right. Let's let it fly here. We'll start right there, Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal, Assembly of God, Pagan, Catholic. All right, now I may have missed your denomination in that, but what I'm going to do now is on the count of three, all of you that did say it, I want you to say it again, but we're all going to say the church that we grew up with, the denomination at the very same time, okay? Okay. So on the count of three, one, two, three. You know what that was? That was a mess. That's what that was. And that's the reason why there's so much disunity among different churches. But you know what? There's beauty in the name of Jesus. In fact, I I, I want you to say the name Jesus with me. Jesus. Say it a little louder. A little louder still. Now say it quietly. Isn't that beautiful? See, that's what Jesus prayed for that night. There is harmony in the church. That's what Jesus wanted. We're united in Christ Jesus when we're one in him. And when we are filled with the same message and unity, people say, my, how they love one another. And the world will believe. And when Jesus and his disciples finished in that upper room that night, Jesus led them through the streets of Jerusalem. He led them out of city gate into a special place. John 18.1 says it this way. When he'd finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and he crossed the Kidron Valley. And on the other side there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Now don't miss this. As they were going to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was on the Mount of Olives, they had to go down into and cross the Kidron Ravine, the Kidron Valley. And that was a place that had a channel cut all the way up the hill into the holy place, into the temple in Jerusalem. And along that channel would flow the blood of every sacrifice offered on the altar by the priest and his associates. Now remember... This is Passover that they're celebrating. And that means that there was an estimated over 256,000 lambs slaughtered on that altar. And all that blood flowed down that channel into the Kidron Valley. and Jesus and his disciples would have to cross that. And I wonder at that moment if, if Jesus' mind meant, went to what he would be facing in the hours to come. In just a matter of hours, he would give his blood as the Lamb of God, sacrificed to take away the sins of the world on a cross once and for all. Jesus had seen crucifixions before. He knew how excruciating the pain would be that lay ahead of him. In fact, our word excruciating comes from the Latin word excrucia, from the cross. He knew the sins of the entire world would be stacked upon him. And in that moment, it would alienate him from the Heavenly Father with a silence that he had never experienced in his life upon this earth or even from eternity past. What Jim said this morning was true, and and it really is the second point this morning in your outline. In those final moments, Jesus came to the garden and he felt the crush of what was to come, figuratively and literally, because Gethsemane literally means the place of crushing. The Garden of Gethsemane was an olive grove, and within that garden where they would harvest these olives, there was a great stone press where these huge rocks would just crush these olives. And the first release of of fluid from those olives, that would be what you and I know as virgin olive oil, the first pressing, the finest oil But they would continue to the second and third and fourth pressing until every drop had been squeezed from the flesh of the olives. And so when Jesus comes to this place of crushing, he knows what is to come. He knows the crush that in just hours, everyone that has called him Lord and Savior, everyone that has followed him, they're going to abandon him. He knows the crush that one of them, Judas Iscariot, is about to betray him in the coming hours the crush of an unfair trial, the crush of a brutal flogging about to be followed by a crucifixion. And it's no wonder when he arrives at the garden with his disciples, he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You ever been there? You ever been overwhelmed like that and you don't feel like you can take another breath? Matthew went on to say, did you, did you catch that going a little further? Verse 39, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. I find that very significant because I think every one of us at some point in our lives, we've asked the big questions. God, do you really understand the pain I'm going through right now? Does God understand how bad my life hurts? Does God understand how agonizing it is to see my wife suffer, my children suffer. Does God understand this situation? Does God know the pain of my infertility? Does God know the pain of of my plans for my family and my marriage that have just crumbled at the last minute? Does God know the pain I feel when I lose a job or there's a miscarriage or a death or divorce or abuse, or an overdose, or a malignancy. Friends, would you stop for a moment and consider the anguish of Jesus? I have seen you know, dozens of those artist renderings of what it was like for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I'm betting you probably have too. They put it on those blankets sometimes that people receive at funerals, and every time, it is a nice and peaceful picture. Sometimes there's a halo of light around Jesus' face as he kneels with his hands folded looking up to heaven. Sometimes there's a shaft of light that illuminates him. You know, and he's got that Fabio hair that looks like it's just been blow-dried. You know, he's got his robe spread out behind him like some photographer or a bridesmaid. You know how they go behind a bride, fluff the train and spread it out. All the creases are in the right place. That's not... it looked like in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is there in anguish. And he didn't just kneel, did he? We read that he fell with his face to the ground. His clothes were dirty. He perspired, his hair was matted with sweat dripping off of his head. And, And friends, there is no pain that you or I are experiencing in our lives that is any deeper than the pain that he felt when he came to that place of crushing. It was there that Jesus could pray and pick up the words of the psalmist in Psalm 22, verse 1, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? And in fact, I want you to read out loud with me what the prophet Isaiah would say. Read this aloud with me. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for ours. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. You will never experience a pain greater than the pain that Jesus felt. Why did he pray? Well, I want to, I want to share this with you. And there's really four dimensions of the prayer Jesus offered there. And, and again, I want you to I invite you to write these down. I want to encourage you to do this this week. Between now and Good Friday, I want you to pick one of these four things and every day take one of them and just meditate on it as you read the account of those last days of his life. Then, when you approach Good Friday and, and, and Easter Sunday, our hearts can be in a better place to receive Christ in a deeper way. He first prayed specifically. Jesus prayed specifically in his prayer. Not some vague generalities. Notice what he prayed in Matthew 26, 38. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. That's a very specific request. God, if it's possible, may this cup, may this cross, may this brutality that lays ahead of me, I'd like to bypass it all. Could you just take it away? I think one of the most common causes for us of what we think is unanswered prayer is that we come to God with such vague generalities, we don't really get specific in our request to God. We just say things like, God, be with me today. Be with my kids today at school. Be with all of us. And and while you're at it, God, just be with everybody in the world. You know, just be with the sick. And although I think God does hear that prayer, sometimes I wonder when I pray that way myself, Or I hear those prayers, does God really know what I mean? Do I really know? James 5.13 asks, is any one of you in trouble? Then let them pray. The scriptures say you don't have because you do not ask God. Jesus prayed specifically, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. So it's okay. Pray the bless me prayers. Pray the with us, the forgive us prayers. But Go deeper. And if you're going to ask God for forgiveness, what do you want him to forgive you for? It's not that God doesn't know our need and he can't act until we name it. He knows. But friends, we need to know. We need to connect with our prayers and do more than simply offer generalities. If you think it's not important, guys, go home to your wife today and say, honey, please forgive me and stop. Her mind will go all over the place trying to think, what did he do wrong? Jesus prayed specifically, and then he prayed selflessly. He was very specific with his request. In fact, three times in Scripture, he made the same request. And yet he ended with complete surrender to God. Three times after praying that prayer, Father, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me, he said the comment, yet not as I will, but as you will. God, not my way, but but your way. It's my desire to bypass this whole thing, but not as I will. This is what I want, God, but but if what I want doesn't mesh with what you will, I'll accept it. Listen, the true indication of your trust in God is when you trust him to do his will and not your own. Can you truly trust God To do his will. Can you say as John the Baptist said of all things. He must become greater and I must become less. Can you really say heavenly father holy is your name. Your kingdom come. God let your will be done on this earth as it is in heaven. Have you died to your own will. I think it would would be a great opportunity sometimes when we pray. You know as we think God I really want this job. You know, this will be a great opportunity for me and for my family, for the people that I work with. God, I really think this this job is going to meet all the needs of my family. And God, by the way, it's going to put me in a position where I can be more generous with other people. But then say, God, if it's not your will, Father, it's your will that matters, not mine, be done. Or pray, God, I'm really hoping. This is the one. I really like this guy, and I hope he's going to ask me to marry him someday. But if he's not that into me, God, help me to accept it as your will, not my will. We always think of Jesus dying on the cross, but you know, there's another important death that happened in the garden. It was the death of the 100% human side of Jesus' will as he sacrificed it to the Father's will. We need to learn to trust God's will even when we don't understand it. We need to learn to to follow and accept God's will even when we can't track it. And when we do, listen to the encouragement of the psalmist again. In Psalm 37, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He'll make your righteousness and your righteous reward shine like the dawn and your vindication like the noonday sun. Isn't that great? Thirdly, he prayed specifically, he prayed selflessly, and he prayed privately. Evidently, this was a place that Jesus often came to for prayer. We know that because in the Gospel of Luke, it says Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. Evidently, there was a pattern there, and we get an indication in Scripture that when Judas leaves that upper room, that meal that night to go and bargain for the blood of Jesus and betray him. Well, the other disciples stayed and they continued the meal until they were done and and heard those beautiful prayers of Jesus. So when Judas comes back with the soldiers to to arrest Jesus, the first place he goes is to the upper room. And when he sees Jesus and the disciples aren't there, he naturally begins to think and ask himself, gee, you know, I I wonder where Jesus went to. And he knows, well, they're probably in the Garden of Gethsemane because That's a place where he always likes to go. In fact, I bet he wouldn't pass up the opportunity to go there tonight. It was his special, known, private place of prayer. And even when Jesus got to the Garden of Gethsemane, he withdrew, the scriptures say, about a stone's throw from those three disciples he took into the deeper ring with him in the garden. It was even more private. And listen, I've never been to Israel. I'd love to go there sometime. I'd love to go with Doug Fisher, actually, to Israel, but I don't want to be arrested and put into an Israeli prison. Um, But I would love to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and I would love to kneel there and pray in the same garden where Jesus prayed. But, you know, you don't have to go to that geographical location to have your own special Garden of Gethsemane. You can create your own special place for you, and, and maybe it's your patio. Maybe it's a screen porch. It might be a special chair. It might be a special room in the house, a front porch swing. It might be a park. It might be a cabin somewhere up in the mountains. But a place where you just speak with God and you listen to him. You close yourself off and you talk with God. And you don't have to impress God with all the flowery words because he knows what's in your heart. You don't have to worry about somebody else overhearing you and listening to you. Jesus even taught in Matthew 6, verse 5, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, because they love to stand praying in the synagogues and on the street corner to be seen by others. And I tell you the truth, they've received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room and close the door and pray to your Father who's unseen, and then your Father who sees what is done in secret, He will reward you. Well, here's the fourth and the last part of the prayer I want you to notice. He prayed... Specifically, he prayed selflessly, he prayed privately, and he prayed passionately. Dr. Luke tells us about what, what Jim mentioned in the communion this morning. In Luke 22, verse 43, it tells us, uh, A little known and remembered fact that an angel came from heaven and appeared to Jesus and strengthened him. But being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. The prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was a bloody prayer. Physiologists describe this sweat falling as drops of blood to the ground as a condition known as hematohydrosis. It's when literally you're under so much stress, under so much pressure that the small capillaries around your sweat glands burst. And so your sweat becomes tinged red with blood. In his final hours and in his final prayers, as Jesus was preparing to make his sacrifice on the cross, he falls on his face before God and it becomes this passionate and bloody prayer. And Jesus uses one of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. It's a specific term used rarely in Scripture. In fact, this is the first time it's ever used to refer to God. It comes to us in Mark, the 14th chapter and the 36th verse. It's the term Abba. Jesus says, Abba, Father. He said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The word Abba is an intensely intimate use for a father. It's like you and I would say, Daddy. And if you've got Jewish friends that still speak Hebrew, or if you've ever been to the Middle East, you'll see little kids running around saying, Abba, Abba, and what they're doing is they're, they're looking for their daddy. You know, last night, uh, Olivia and Dom went to prom for Shawnee, and they were in formal dress, and, and, and it, just, it startled me, to be honest, to see how much my daughter has grown up. I mean, it's just like yesterday that she was the baby that Cheryl and I were waiting to see. And we learn that, that sometimes when you have a baby, the, the, especially with my little girls, uh, while they're still in the womb, did you know that babies, uh, they can hear music. And if it's a particular music that they hear over and over again, once they're born and they hear that music, it can, just, it can change their mood. They will, their attention level will perk up and they'll listen to that music and they can hear voices and recognize them when they're still in the womb. So that when they're born, they can hear a family member's voice and know that. In fact, this, this is what happened in our family. When I learned that, and Cheryl was expecting, and much to her frustration, I would love to just kind of lay my head on her belly, and I would talk to Olivia in the womb. And I would get a little elbow to the head, you know, a little kick sometimes from her. And there was an interesting uh, phenomenon that happened. Because I'm preaching, there was times Cheryl would be in church, and as I'm preaching, she would start to do little flips. I mean, she was running even before she was born in the womb. But you know what she was doing? Even in the womb, as she heard my voice, she was saying, that's my dad up there. That's my, that's my dad's voice. And last night, seeing her all dressed up and growing up, I realized she's still kicking me in the heart. <laughs> She's still elbowing me in the gut. It's an intimate conversation that often goes on in healthy relationships between children and their fathers. You know, when we're young, we think our, our dad's dad can do anything. But of course, we eventually realize that our dads they're, they're not perfect. They can't do everything. They're not omnipotent. But Jesus comes to the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-everywhere, all-everything God of the universe. And he says, Abba, Father. You know, I lost my dad on Father's Day, uh, Sunday morning, June the 20th, 1999. It was 20 years ago this year. I will be, this year, 52 years old. So I lost my dad when I was 31 back then. There's still days in my life where I think, man... I'd love to be able to ask my dad. Dad, what would you do in this situation? Dad, how do you fix this? Or or what did you do when this happened? Or dad, I could use some extra prayer. Dad, I can use your strength. I could use uh, your opinion right now. And many of you, you wish you had a dad like that growing up. Somebody that you could turn to to get that that intimate wisdom in a moment of need. And as Jesus knelt and fell on his face in the dirt in the garden of Gethsemane before God and he was sweating drops of blood, he cried out to his dad. Now many of you have had moments in your life where you cried out to God when you didn't think you could take another step. There was an intensity going on that you didn't think you could endure. You didn't know how you were going to make it but after praying that prayer over this whole situation, Jesus gets up and he wakes up his snoring disciples who couldn't even stay awake with him for an hour when he prayed. And he says, guys, it's time. Matthew 26, 45, he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. You know, Jesus didn't come to his disciples and say, I can't believe you guys. I can't hardly handle this. This is so much for me, and you're sleeping. He didn't come to them and say, guys, let's make a run for it. We can be back by the Sea of Galilee in a fishing boat by tomorrow night. But having prayed specifically and selflessly and privately and having prayed passionately for God's will to be done, he's ready. To courageously take this uphill climb of Mount Calvary with resolve and with peace. It's time to end our service this morning. I want to give you a few takeaways from, from this prayer before we leave. And the first one is this you know, crisis prayers, they're most effective when they're preceded by daily prayers. Nobody could have prayed like Jesus did under that pressure without a lot of patience and practice. This wasn't the first time, obviously, that Jesus had prayed to the Father. He had cultivated that intimacy every day. We read all through the Gospels that Jesus had this habit of going off to pray on all these non-crisis days. In fact, we read in Matthew 14, 23, after he had dismissed his disciples, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night, he was still up there alone. Mark 1.35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Luke 5.16, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Luke 6.12, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. My point, friends, Jesus had this as a habit On a daily basis, he prayed in all the non-crisis moments so that his crisis prayers were most effective. He knew how to pray and listen to his father in those moments. You know, there's a well-known basketball coach who said, that he could be sitting in an arena with 27,000 screaming and cheering fans, but he could sit on the bench and give instruction to his players in a conversational tone. And every player of his, they can hear his voice. Why is that? It's because they've learned to hear their coach's voice every day in practice. And so they recognize it during game time when the intensity is on and the noise level is high. Now, don't get me wrong, God always hears and answers 911 prayers. But if that's the only time that you talk to God and not daily, you're not going to have the composure to receive the greatest blessing that you could have and the need to talk to God in the time of crisis. Jesus knew crisis prayers are more effective when they're preceded by daily prayers. Here's the next takeaway even when prayer doesn't change circumstances, it changes us. How important that is. You know, there are times that prayer does change circumstances. I won't read it to you all this morning, but in Jonah chapter 3, we, we know the account that God was prepared to destroy the Assyrian capital of Nineveh. But when God sends the prophet Jonah there and tells them about it, the people repent. They're brokenhearted and and they show a humility before God. Even the king himself comes down and takes off his royal robes and and he puts on sackcloth and ashes and he gives a command that even the animals in the land are to be covered with sackcloth and and, and pray that God might possibly relent from sinning calamity. And the scriptures say when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented from bringing on them the destruction that he had threatened. In the New Testament, we read in Acts chapter 12, verse 5, how the followers of Jesus, they prayed for Peter when he was locked up in prison, and his circumstances changed when the doors came open, and he was freed. The president of Hope University out in Fullerton, California, is a fellow by the name of Dr. John Darian. One day he heard that his wife Jane had contracted one of the rarest forms of cancer in the world. Now, Dr. Derry was selected as alumnus of the year at ETSU, uh, East Tennessee State University. He was given the award of Fide et Amor from Milligan College, the Restoration uh, Award from Lincoln Christian University for higher Christian education. He said, you know, if anybody asks me why God allows bad things to happen to good people, he said, I could give you a bona fide theological answer with bullet points. But when it was my wife, when it hit me, I was crushed. Now no one had ever survived this, this rare cancer. But many people prayed like crazy. And the doctors were even left scratching their heads. And even they called it a miracle. Prayer changes circumstances. But even when it doesn't change circumstances, it changes us. Jesus prayed, Father, if it's possible, let this cup be taken from me. Let it bypass me. But God did not take away the cup of suffering from his one and only son. God did send an angel to encourage him in that moment. And we have every right to pray to God and ask him for protection in the car or on the airplane or in the classroom or on a trip or to be exempt from cancer or from grief or pain or financial calamity. But perhaps it's God's will to give us a greater strength to endure it, to mature us and to change us through the trials and make us more like His Son. Last takeaway I, I want to give is a challenge, really. Christ like prayer always includes intentionally praying, praying intentionally for those yet to believe. Just like the prayers that Jesus offered in the upper room and in the garden that night. God, for all those people who will believe one day, may they be one. Jesus prayed for our unity. He prayed for those who would believe. You know, when Jesus arrived in the garden that night and he prayed, afterwards the soldiers came to him and we read in our, in our passage today in verse 49, going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. And the men stepped forward and they seized Jesus and arrested him. You ever had a knife in your back like that? You know how painful it is. Someone you thought you could trust that betrayed you. Somebody you thought was a confidant and you shared something intimate with them and they, they went out and gossiped or whatever. And you're left picking up the pieces. Your first reaction might have been anger, it might have been retaliation, it might have been hurt or some inner rage, but Jesus' response was do what you came for. And did you notice what he called Judas? Friend. What? <laughs> Jesus, you're going to call Judas a friend? But Jesus never gave up on anybody. And even in that moment of Trail, he was reminding him, Judas, I picked you. Judas, I, I called you. I still love you, Judas. My grace in this moment is still deeper and greater than you will ever know, my friend. And the Bible says in, in Luke 7 34, it was the complaint against Jesus. He's a friend of sinners. He never gave up, no matter how messy their lives or our lives have been, no matter what's in our present or our past, he never gives up. And friends, that's why we should never give up on anybody. We are on a high-stakes mission as a church. We're on a search and rescue mission to seek those who God misses and loves the most. And like the father in the story of the prodigal son, God stands there with his arms open wide, waiting to receive them back, And you and I are called as ambassadors to go and lead them home so that he can say, I love you with an everlasting love. We have to follow the example of Jesus. In Luke 19.10, it says, the Son of Man, he came to seek and save the lost. Just, Just for one more person to know his grace. What could God do this Easter? What better day for anyone to be to, to risen in Christ than on the day itself, today even. I remember one time going to Walmart when both the girls were little. And Cheryl had forgotten something in another aisle, and She said, watch the girls, I'll be right back. And she left. She only asked me to do, guys, one thing. But as I was standing there with Emma, I noticed Olivia was gone. And I started looking around for her, and and I started going up and down the aisle, and I was calling her name. People were looking, and they realized what was going on, and and they were kind of keeping an eye out, too. Even called the sales associate and said, can can you help me? I can't find my daughter. And if you've been there, you know how you feel. Your heart goes up to your throat, and you start to be filled with anxiety and fear. And I'm thinking, Cheryl only gave me one job, and she's not going to buy the old thing. You know what? It's, It's all about quantity over quality we had two. we still have one it wasn't going to fly with her and I walk past this circular uh clothing rack that has a little gap in it and I see Olivia sitting in the middle of it smiling at me she's got that grin that says I pulled one over on the old man I got him but when she saw the look on my face she started to cry She didn't know that she was lost until she was found. Maybe that's where Christ came real into your life. And there are people in this room, there are people in your existence, they don't know they're lost until they're found. And friends, I just want to challenge you this morning, if that's you, today is the day of salvation. Maybe God has found you through his word, through song, through prayer, through through what we've done this morning. Maybe as a believer, he's reminded you, you're on a rescue mission. You're on a seek and find mission now. And it involves more than looking for Easter eggs that have been hidden. You're looking for souls that belong to a heavenly father. But how about you? Maybe this morning is the day your soul is found. It's the day that you say to Jesus, I'm ready what you did for me in that garden, what you did for me on that cross and coming out of that grave, you did that so that my sins could be forgiven, so that I could be reconciled to my heavenly father who's waiting for me with arms open wide. Friends, we're gonna sing a song of decision this morning and if God has placed anything on your heart, maybe to receive him, maybe to make this your church home, maybe to simply say, I could use the church family to pray for me. I'm gonna ask you to come, but first I wanna ask you to stay on me this morning. And I want to pray with you. So let's stand together and let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. I know, and, and I know that you know, the times I've been sitting in the middle of those clothes rack thinking, look at me. <laughs> Nobody even knows what I'm involved in. Nobody knows the sin of my life and then before your word and before your spirit, Lord, you convict me. It's not the job of some preacher. It's not the job of some relative to, to make us feel convicted. That's the job of your Holy Spirit. And in that moment, I knew. Now, I wasn't just caught, I was lost. And you love me with a love that led you to come looking for me, even to the point of making the greatest sacrifice. And not just for me, but for everyone in this room and everyone of all time. You allowed God, your son, to be crushed in that garden of crushing with a burn of guilt and violence and selfishness and arrogance and sin, pride, ours. And you say, follow me. Lord, we we want to receive you more fully every moment of our life. And maybe for somebody here today, it's time. They know it's time. And it's time to come forward. Lord, I just ask that you would stir them up by your spirit. Lord, help us all this week to walk through the pages of scriptures with you. To go through the temple from today and that triumphal entry and that final moment of hearing the praise before the shouts of Hosanna turned to crucify. Help us to walk into that upper room and, and know that you came and washed your, your your disciples' dirty feet. And you told them and you tell us to, to pick up our towel and to serve each other. Well, Lord, we know there's a lot of dirty feet in this world. We know that we have betrayed you in many ways. And we don't want to see Jews too close because we're afraid we might see something of ourself in him. Sometimes it's for a whole lot less than 30 pieces of silver. It's just to be approved of, just to be acknowledged, just to feel better about ourselves. And Father, forgive us for those moments of guilt. We need you. We need your cleansing. We need the life that only you can provide. And Father, we come to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.